0: Hello, and welcome to the first issue of The History of Now, a podcast from the history faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked-down suburban living room just south of the River Cam. I'm Chris Clark, and today I'm talking with Adam Tooze, Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University in New York. Adam is the author of a number of celebrated books, But the most pertinent for today's discussion is his famous study of the global financial crisis of 2007-8, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. And before I speak with Adam about the economic dimensions of the coronavirus crisis, let me say that we're operating for the moment under narrow technical constraints, so I ask you to forgive the appalling quality of the audio. Adam, when historians try to think historically about the great events of the present, they often face a choice between two options. One is to align current phenomena with analogous precedents. The other is to foreground the novel, distinctive and unforeseen features of our present predicaments. Where do you stand on that spectrum?
1: Well, I'm squarely on the on the latter side, on the second of your two options. I have been throughout really my career as a historian. I'm I'm a modernist. I I believe in, and I the way I view the world is as a you know one upheaved by gigantic discontinuity, uh, which I see as generative of dramatic novelty. I, I find nothing um, less surprising than the fact that we are now confronting yet another shock which is indeed unprecedented mm. um, to make that kind of claim however of course the the you need to draw on um, to the best of your ability uh, you know the, the range of previous experience so as to be able to to underpin that claim with 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 some kind of database if you like to, to for want of a better word and um, Certainly measured against the standards of what we saw in 2008, which itself was measured against the standards of the late 1990s financial crises or the turmoil of the 1970s or, of course, the Great Depression of 1929. What we're facing right now on literally a day by day, hour by hour basis in really not just the major economies of the world, but the entire world economy um, does indeed seem unprecedented. And in what ways is it unprecedented? I mean, it's true that um, public figures
0: in the United States have, uh, some at least, have been uh, turning to to your book, to Crash, as a kind of script for reading the current crisis. Um, what is it about the about the crisis of the the global financial crisis of 2008? What is it about that crisis that um, that, that What parallels
1: do you see between that crisis and the and contemporary developments? Well, the the fundamental difference, what is distinctive about 2020 is that the shock comes from an actual deliberate shutdown of what economists like to call the real economy, in other words, production, buying and selling, um, people moving around going to work, um, uh, people going out to shop, uh, the basic transport infrastructure on which we all all rely, all of this is, is not being shut down as a result of as it were, the anonymous massive social force of economic activity grinding to a slowdown as it sometimes does but Mm. as the result of of government order um, itself triggered by what in the end are overriding preoccupations with with public safety with public health Um, and this makes it quite different from from the recession like 2008 or 2007-8 which has obscure origins if you like in the workings of the real estate financial mechanism and it's also Mm. quite different from a from a war where a government takes a decision to simultaneously shift the balance of an economy and massively mobilise it. Whereas what we're talking about doing is stopping an economy in its tracks and at a pace and with a rapidity and a drama, which we have literally never seen before. So in recorded statistical history that there has not been a shutdown in the labor market um, as rapid as what we're going to see in the statistics this week. The best estimates coming out of the US right now are that that probably 2.5 million people signed on for unemployment benefit in the last seven days, um, Mm. which is um, three times more than were lost um, in the worst months of the 2008-09 recession. So in a week, three times worse than at the worst point in the 8 9 recession this is This is staggering., um, yes. it's, it's really the most extraordinary sudden stop we've ever experienced. And how important is the suddenness of the stop?
0: Um how important is the rapidity with which the the freeze happens? does the Does the suddenness of the stop itself do damage that is irreparable?
1: It absolutely does. For, for when economists think about what you know conventionally we think of as shocks or turmoil or whatever, the question they always ask is, is it anticipated? Um, because if it was anticipated, then in a sense, preemptively what markets do in the most sophisticated form through derivatives and futures contracts and so on is price that future contingency into the present. Sure. If you have a shock like this, um, which, which is frankly sort of inconceivable, um, it's not, of course, true to say the pandemic was inconceivable, but there is a mental disconnect, which meant that We didn't take the warnings by epidemiologists seriously that this could happen. And now it's deadly serious. And furthermore, politicians have finally come around to taking it seriously. That was not priced in to the markets. It was not priced into debt contracts. It's people haven't insured against it. Even sectors which are extraordinarily vulnerable, like the transport sector, the airlines, you know, Emirates, the world's largest airline, stopped its activities, um, has announced it's stopping activities. Those kind of risks are just not priced in and so when that happens it causes a huge shock in the financial system which is really in reflecting and reverberating if you like the judder that is running through the entire economic apparatus so basically everybody's decisions i mean and we're experiencing of course in our daily lives we're having to cancel dozens and dozens of meetings we're having to upend our plans at the most mundane level how do i cope with my family life um, now that my children are at home or my spouse isn't going to work um, these kind of decisions of the micro level are being reflected in the financial markets at an epic scale in trillion dollar markets like the foreign exchange market. I mean, there have been
0: very you know, rapid and sharp crises in the past. I'm thinking of, um, you know, the outbreak of the First World War, for example, where you have a, you know, within a period of just over a month, you move from um, actually from a, a moment when many of the most the best informed European statesmen think that um, they cannot see a war on the, in the offing, they cannot see any trouble on the horizon. And, uh, and yet, you know, a month or so after this assassination in, in Sarajevo, you have a, a major conflagration on the continent and within a year, you know, this is showing signs of becoming a full-on global conflict. So um, you, you have this swift shock to the international system. It has profound effects on trade and um, there's a lot of stock market volatility, a lot of uncertainty. Um, Is that not comparable with the situation we have now?
1: Well, I do think World War One is a better analogy than World War II. World War II, of course, suits us better because especially in the British and the American world, we have nostalgic feelings associated with World War Two, which we don't mm. have with World War One. World War II stands for the good war. Furthermore, it's a war that we ultimately won. So we feel, as it were, sort of uh, warm and cozy feelings when we think about World War II. For a German historian like you or me, that doesn't come quite so naturally in any case. And you don't see Berlin invoking those kind of analogies with the same ease that it comes to Johnson or or Trump. World War I is a better example precisely because the mobilization was botched because people didn't understand what kind of war they were headed towards because they imagined the war would be over by Christmas. And so you do indeed see a spike in unemployment at the beginning of the war. There is, in a sense, a kind of sense that the war is a holiday, a vacation, shocking, surprising and bad news from ordinary reality until within months of the outbreak of the war, the reality kicks in that that isn't going to be the case. This is going to be a war of massive mobilization. So large parts of the economy will be shut down, but other bits are going to be ramped up. But even allowing for this, even uh, even accepting that World War I is a better analogy than World War II, the difference is still stark. I'm looking out at Broadway right now. I'm looking out of my seventh floor window in Broadway, socially isolating as we all should. And there is no one on the street. Every shop is shut apart from the pharmacies and the food stores, and all of the restaurants are closed. There are no images like that at the beginning of World War One. There is Mm -hmm. a mess. Sure, financial markets react badly, but shops remain open and restaurants do. And you might think, oh, well, those are superficial and small bits of the economy. They're anything but. That is the soft tissue, the texture, the fabric of the service sector economy. And as we know, the service sector is by far and away the largest sector of any modern economy today. So that shut down the empty malls, the empty shopping streets, the empty cafes, the empty restaurants, that is the modern economy shutting down. It's what it looks like. And of course, in Asia, where the big factories of the world are, those have been idled too. the major motor car manufacturers have all shut their facilities. But this sense of an absolutely complete break um, is, is, is unprecedented. Yes, it's, it's
0: very strange. It's it's like it's like a return to a very remote past where the where the streets belong to to walkers um, because there's simply no traffic. Um,
1: well, there's no walkers. There's no. I mean, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but there are no walkers in New York.
0: Um, there are a few walkers left in in, in Cambridge, but uh, not right. many.
1: And, but, and New York is a, New York is a walking city, so this isn't a strange American phenomenon. Um, it's a reflection of the fact that we're facing in this city. This week, in the coming hours and days, an absolutely acute crisis in the hospitals. So really, Americans have gone from being very saw about this and taking lectures from Governor Cuomo only last night about how that their failure to take this seriously to to something approaching a complete lockdown. Very, very interesting. I mean, I'm just
0: thinking now if, if we, if we, you know, you've been talking about how to situate the the current crisis in the context of a chain of um, of financial disruptions from the past and that's one way to make sense of them as an historian of the of the current crisis as an historian but um what about the history of past pandemics because that that produces a somewhat different picture doesn't it at least of modern pandemics like the spanish influenza of 1918
1: i think the the big difference here is the capacities of modern government, I mean, and the implicit promises that have been made, right? I mean, the interesting thing about this crisis is that it isn't a plague-style crisis. People aren't going to fall down dead in the street. Um, no. a, a country going through what is clearly an absolutely traumatic convulsive experience like Italy right now, which is coming our way in the UK and the US as well, will be kind of eerily quiet. And, um, this isn't this isn't uh, a plague spreading in the manner of, of the great early modern plagues, where there will be you know carts rumbling through the street asking us to bring out our dead. The the death will be concentrated, um, if we're fortunate at least, in the big medical centres. It is, and it's the disruption that's going on there, their complete inability to cope, which in the most extreme cases in Wuhan did indeed spill out into people dying in their apartments and having to be their bodies, having to be retrieved later on. But there is a, to my mind that the fascinating thing about this crisis is it's sort of a second order crisis. I mean, it isn't the deaths of hundreds of thousands or even a millions of people that really per se is the disruptive thing because the people who were dying, this isn't the AIDS epidemic of sub-Saharan Africa in the nineties where the productive young population was dying and where people were literally wasting away by the side of the street. Um, This is a crisis that is going to unfold largely, at least if it remains, you know, within Italian scope. And of course, there are even worse scenarios, but let's just assume it does. It will unfold within the innards, within the interstices of the welfare state, of the national health services, or in the American case, this ramshackle privatized system that we have. But
0: it's very striking, isn't it? Because I mean, you mentioned the AIDS epidemic in in sub-Saharan Africa, but there's also I mean, thinking of the Spanish influenza epidemic, which that was also an epidemic which struck hardest at the most economically productive. Um, it was people between 14 and 50 who, who, who bore the brunt of the of the lethality of that of that epidemic, and yet. When you look at studies, as I and you know, millions of others have been doing over the last um, c- couple of weeks of, the, of that epidemic in various regions, you find that the, the, the economic effects were short-term. That, uh, that the yeah. that in, in terms of human suffering, of course, immense. And there's the the fact that you know uh, babies in utero during the pandemic, and lots of studies have shown that they, they continue to um, achieve lower than average educational attainments, higher levels of mm. disability, lower average incomes and all that, but in terms of the sort of macroeconomic performance of the system, the impact is very short-lived by the, a couple of years later, um, you've more than made up the, the, you know, the loss to GDP that was caused by the pandemic itself. Do you think that we're going to see something similar after this um, pandemic or are we looking at a different set of mechanisms?
1: It's, it's too early to tell, obviously, yeah. what's going to happen in this case. The difference is, is that in the economic history of the aftermath of World War One, the pandemic doesn't feature. So if you read accounts of monetary policy and fiscal policy in 1918, 1919, I mean, heaven's sake, I, 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 you know, I wrote this book about it, the, the deluge on financial policy in that period. I don't I think I don't mention the influenza in the book um, because in the negotiation of reparations, in the negotiations of fiscal policy, it doesn't figure. It doesn't figure, A, because they're not major welfare states with huge outstanding commitments to maintain hospital systems Mm -hmm. and B, because they didn't undertake comprehensive efforts to stop the spread in the way that we are. That's what I meant earlier about saying this is a second order crisis. I mean, we are deliberately shutting down the economy so as to manage to flatten the curve and manage the pressures on a different bit of our social system, which is the highly institutionalized, highly organized public health system. If you don't have that healthcare system and that organized commitment to public health, which was much less substantial in 1918, 1919 than it is today, then you also, if you like, relieved of the responsibility to shut your economy down to manage it. Um, you know, and Johnson and, and Trump have occasionally blurted out, well, maybe if you like, the cure is worse than the disease, maybe we should just simply accept the price. But there are very powerful mechanisms pushing back against that. You know, there is a very powerful sense on the part of society in general and politics that there is a duty of care that we cannot allow this kind of, um, you know, a, 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 we can't just stand aside whilst hundreds of thousands if not millions of the most vulnerable people die under miserable circumstances in hospitals which are there to fix them and which if they have the capacity could perhaps at least keep them alive if, even if we lack a cure. So there is a, mm. a sense yeah. in which we're hoist by our own petard, right? Where we are, we are caught by our own commitments to the idea that we can avoid this kind of mass death and indeed we could and we are that we know that you can and highly organized successful societies not just authoritarian ones like china but also south korea and taiwan have demonstrated how you can do this singapore as well um and it's the failure of the West to do that, which is meaning that we're going to have to adopt these incredibly expensive alternatives. And then, of course, the question will be posed whether we can keep them up because they are so incredibly expensive. None of this drama ever unfolded in
0: 1918, 1919. No, it's, in a way, it's what, you, what I'm wondering if you're suggesting also is that it's your, this, is a, this is a form of connectivity. This commitment to welfare is a form of connectivity, um, whereas in the 1919, 1918 context, and there are a few studies which show that, there's an, a huge amount of local Mayhem, but it it does remain localized. It's not connected to the hub. Whereas here, local mayhem connects directly to the hub and causes
1: the feedback loops are much more complicated. And I, I, you Uh, know, the most, I mean, if I may, the most egregious uh, dimension of that is that we remember the 1918 1919 flu pandemic as a challenge to Europe and the United States, but all of the demographic data show that the casualties were vastly higher in India and sub Saharan Africa. So, But that, speaking to your point about a disconnect, I mean, both in, as it were, contemporary management of the crisis and in subsequent historical memory, the place where that influenza actually did its most severe damage, where it really ravished the populations, barely even figure in our memory, whereas that is not the way in which this is going to play out. To that extent, we are massively more integrated. And the big questions coming down the pike over the next couple of months is, are indeed whether places like India or South Africa can, in fact, contain this shock. Yes.
0: I mean, um, you've actually yourself been drawing attention to some new phenomena in the in the financial world, which um, you think are, are sort of signal features of this crisis and, and aspects of its unprecedented quality. And uh, among other things, uh, the rush towards the American dollar and the, the deployment of swap lines.
1: So this is a feature of continuity between 08 and the current moment. Um, One of the structural features of the world economy since World War II has been the centrality of the dollar to global finance. Uh, And that has remained true even after the end of the Bretton Woods system, which was the formal recognition of that fact um, in the early 70s. And so we live in a world in which everyone in the world conducts their business in terms of the American currency, which is fine whilst the American currency is available in ample supply and with low interest rates and the balance between demand and supply is not um disturbed but what you see in moments of panic in 08 and again over the last couple of weeks is a global rush out of any kind of investment into cash and amongst cash into dollars and this exerts huge pressure on the roughly 12 trillion dollars worth of american credit of loans not by american banks it's important to say this but amongst global banks lending to each other in dollars. So we've seen a, a huge run-up of the exchange rate. You felt that in Britain as well, with a huge depreciation of sterling against the dollar last week, um, and huge selling of assets across both the advanced economy world and the emerging market world. And the way the, the question then is, how do you respond to this? I mean, how, do, how in a crisis like this do we deal with a situation in which the globe's, the world's currency, the de facto global currency is, in fact, the American national currency, um, and at that point, the American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, has to stop, step in, if you like, to provide liquidity in various ways, and it's a measure of the severity of this crisis that we're experiencing and its speed. That the Central Bank in Washington, acting by way of its branch in New York, has had to roll out a network for supplying dollars to the banks of both Europe and since last week also to major emerging market central banks, who then trickled that, those dollars down, and we're talking about tens of billions of dollars, to um, their banks, their financial institutions, without which we would be experiencing, on top of the nightmarish scenario of the pandemic, a similarly nightmarish implosion of financial systems in many parts of the world. Or a collapse in American financial markets as they sell, as as international investors piled in and sold everything that was on their balance sheets. So what we're delicately trying to do, if you like, is keep enough dollar liquidity in the system to prevent that from compounding our problems.
0: And these are the so-called swap lines?
1: The swap lines, indeed, that's the technical term. So that's a kind of deal between central banks where they basically agreed to create equal amounts of currency at prevailing exchange rates. Central banks have the privilege of being able to essentially generate their own currency. We, colloquially, we say they can print it. Of course, now in this day and age, it's just computer credits. And the central banks credit each other with, so the euro will credit the Fed with a bunch of euros and the Fed will in, in exchange credit the ECB with a bunch of dollars. And that then allows the ECB to, to more, sell those off, auction them off to european financial institutions that need them Um, and then you can unwind this so these will be done through a series of swaps which are kind of temporary loans where Mm. we loan each other our stuff like a library book or sort of count you know two library books people exchanging books with each other or whatever any any kind of exchange like that and it's done in the form of currencies and that enables the temporary shortage to be tidied over and
0: there's been some chat online about the, and also in the in the media, um, print media, on possible disruptions to the sort of hegemonic politics um, of today's world. Do you see any potential of that kind in the current crisis? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, um, I mean, I've been struggling with this question for, for many years now. Um, one of the guiding kind of threads of, of, of my interest in modern history has been the question of America's more or less overt influence on global power. And I think what we've observed over the last 15 to 20 years is not so much the simple disappearance of American power. And we were just talking about the swap lines, which is about as graphic a demonstration as the dependence of the world economy on America as you could ask for. Absolutely. Um, You know, I mean, European central banks refer to themselves as uh, uh, ATMs, you know, as as cash machines for (laughs) for dollars. so that's, you know, one dimension where American power remains completely dominant. But what I think we can talk about is a kind of disintegration, a kind of separation of different vectors of power, different means of exercising power. Um, the American military, of course, are deeply preoccupied with challenges to their hegemony in that respect. Um, but perhaps um, another aspect is, of course, uh, public credibility, political credibility, the the significance of american culture and american ideology as a guiding light very riding very high after the fall of communism in 89 of course very frayed now and with the figure ahead of donald trump probably reduced to tatters and then i think there's another dimension which is as it were which is going to be very interesting which is the competition of modes of governance if you like that we're That We're seeing now. I mean, if the pandemic goes the way it's looking as though it's going to go, there's going to be an order of magnitude difference, a factor of 10 um, between the casualties in China and the casualties in the United States, maybe Mm -hmm. even larger than that. And that's despite the fact that China is a country which is four times larger than the United States. Yeah, and, and and that is going to be very difficult to deal with, because you, you can spin that any way you like, you know, but but it's kind of going to be rather difficult to explain to ourselves and to other people what it means. I mean, without without putting anything, you know, kind of top bottom rank order, how do we even make sense of the fact that we weren't able to protect our populations better by that degree of difference? Well, of you course,
0: know? yes, that's very interesting. I mean, of course, democracies. Have an answer to failure, and that is um, elections in which they say goodbye to the to the failing administration, and the the voices are now legion that are saying this is effectively the end of the of the Trump presidency. Um,
1: looking like that in the opinion polls, right? So yeah. the astonishing thing is that his approval ratings are actually quite solid. Last time I looked, 47% of Americans approved of his handling of Corona. <laughs> um, <laughs> unbelievable as it is, I mean. 40% of, of Republican-leading Americans who rely on conservative media think the virus was bred in a laboratory.
0: Well, indeed. What, what, what can one say about that? So, I, well, no,
1: what it tells you is that, that it would be unwise to rely on the democratic process as a check. Here.
0: The yeah, absolutely. No, that, and, that's definitely true. Yeah. But I was thinking, though, that, you know, if we think again about the, the analogy, of how, how, whether, however good or bad it is, with the, um, the Great Depression of 29, 30, and so on, in the early 30s, um, you know, that depression, um, you know, prefigured or brought, inaugurated a drift towards um, the right in Europe. Um, it sort of f- finished the process of the weakening and, and collapse of democracy and um, produced a, a really sharp rightward's turn. Do you think that, I mean, one can imagine either of two things happening as a consequence of the current crisis. There's a lot of talk at the moment of the, of the state um, expanding its remit um, to meet all these commitments you were talking about before, um, of intervention in the life of citizens, which are unprecedented. Um, some have spoken of a revival of the social democratic project. Uh, on the other hand, the virus of the pandemic itself is a, you know, it seems like a vindication of arguments against globalization, arguments about... You know the strengthening fortification of national boundaries uh, and so on so that would suggest that it might produce a kind of lurch to the right do you have any thoughts about
1: that well i think i think at this stage what's clear is that if you have a state competent like that of south korea able to deploy technology listen to its experts act rapidly and south korea is a vibrant democracy or you have a a state able to react as quickly as Taiwan did, which was in about three to four days of learning of the severity of the news from mainland China, that in fact you can ride this out and maintain the balance much as it existed in those societies in the beginning of 2020. So I'm a little cautious at this stage just drawing the conclusion that you know, there needs to be some huge upheaval simply also because I'm skeptical about the possibility of mobilizing mass political support behind that. I think what the, what the crisis clearly demonstrates is the huge significance in terms of life and death, if indeed you care much about the life and death of highly unproductive, relatively vulnerable populations. Um, of maintaining effective public health apparatuses, of building the surveillance capacity, having reserve capacity in hospitals, and so on. Yes, in providing, in a, you could, yeah. In, in a very interesting article you, you you wrote for the
0: Guardian, you made the point that the that axiom, you know, the Clintonian axiom, "It's the economy, comma stupid," um, you know, it has has passed its use-by date. It no longer seems so plausible or so so impressive.
1: yeah yeah, indeed i mean i think if you if you look at if you witness the 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 actions of governments around the world in shutting down their economies so as to make the public health crisis uh, manageable. It's difficult, I think, to draw any other conclusion. That doesn't mean, of course, as I also say, that the economics doesn't matter to the genesis of this crisis. It shapes how much we spend on public health and, you know, it shapes the channels through which this virus spreads. And on the other hand, as soon as you've made the decision to go for one strategy or the other in managing the crisis, all of the economics kicks back in again, if you like. But the public health decision supervenes. It is the it is the regulating principle one way or the other. Um, and I mean in you know the, the British case I was thinking of was of course the, the first as it were to demonstrate the untenability of a position which essentially prioritized the maxim of staying open for business. It just wasn't viable to continue that way. But I think there's another test coming on the reverse slope of this, which is having attempted a lockdown and seen the spectacular consequences that has and the extreme difficulty of containing those consequences, how long can we keep the lockdown up for? Now, in the Singaporean case, in the South Korean case, in the Chinese case, because they put the hammer down mm. because they contained this, that trade off is manageable. The dance that they get to perform subsequently is, in fact, a manageable one. We may be facing incredibly unattractive trade-offs by comparison in the West because we allowed the pandemic to run out of control to a far greater degree than ever happened anywhere in Asia so far. Um, You know, because after all, think about China. They contained it within a single province the size of Italy in a country four times the size of, you know, four times the size of the United States. So that means that you have strategic flexibility because you've contained it in one region, Italy, and then you can pour resources in from the rest of that gigantic country, contain it and then manage the recovery and the rest of, the, of that society and feed those resources into reconstructing the place hardest hit. We've lost that capacity because just to take Europe, the crisis is everywhere. Yeah. So for us, the trade-offs are much worse. And they may indeed include trade-offs with very substantial economic damage and then absolutely horrendous casualty figures as well. Those may nevertheless appear to be worth bearing because the economic disaster is as bad as it really is looking to be. Which is why Trump is tweeting, you know, we give this two weeks and then see how we do. Well, Adam, it's been fascinating to talk to you about this crisis and to think about it in um,
0: the way that historians think about the history of now. And uh, I hope we can come back to you as the as the crisis unfolds over the coming weeks.
1: Of course, it will be a pleasure.